kind of curious. How many of y'all think it's view one? How many of you think it's view two? How many of you just still aren't sure and you're not willing to raise your hand? That's fine too. Praise the Lord. Uh, I thank Jesus that regardless of which stance you take on it, it's not a hill to die on, nor is it a hill that you're going to go to heaven or hell over. And there's room for disagreement, and you could be wrong if you want to, okay? <laughs> All right? But uh, nevertheless, what we do find here, and this is what we've emphasized, is what we've emphasized. Whether you take view one, view two, or maybe you've made up your own view, or maybe you've got some sort of weird combination that I just ain't never heard of, we know this. Mankind sinned. Mankind continued to sin. And mankind sinned because they liked sin more than God. And they sinned because they wanted to be their own God. Right? So what we find is that sin causes a great issue and sin must be punished. And God at this point, and here in verse 3 what we're going to get into is that God is going to say, that's it. God certainly allows us to have the free will to either obey Him or disobey Him. Do you all agree? Alright, absolutely. But I do believe this, according to Scripture, that God has a limit. God will only allow us to go but so far. Matter of fact, the evidence is clear. We've got two major catastrophes in the Bible. One is the great flood. Everybody in the world, and I believe in that flood, not only millions, but even perhaps billions died. Except for eight folks that entered into the ark. Where God said, come on in. Then we find another one. And it hasn't happened yet. But it's coming. And it will not be by a flood. And we've got much more than 120 years of prepping for it. We've got from the time that Jesus ascended until He calls His church out of here. And then there will be a great deluge, not of water, but of the absolute wrath and judgment of God. And it will be horrifying. It will make the worldwide flood as if it was nothing. But God in that, what He is doing, and what we're going to see in this Genesis account, of course, is that judgment comes for a purpose. Judgment always comes to purify. Judgment, chastening, convicting, even ending all life except for eight souls is always meant for the good of God's creation and for His glory to be displayed to His creation. Because the very reason why God's creation ended up in this mess that we find in Genesis 6, 1-4 is because they had forgotten His glory. The moment we forget the glory of God is the moment that we go chasing our own sinfulness. The moment we forget who God is, the moment we begin to make ourselves like the Most High. Now, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1-4. through And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them. Here's the great sin. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, and his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in, the daughters of, of men, and they bare children to them, the same became, my, became mighty men, which were men of old, which were of old men of renown. As we pick up here in verse number three, just to sort of recap, we've got basically two views about who the sons of God are and the daughters of men. Daughters of men, pretty simple. That's the daughters of men. These are naturally, clearly human beings. Uh, it seems to be implied that it's not just of uh, believers, but even that of non-believers, but they are human women. And what we find then 
is that we've got two views and options for the sons of God in this uh, wicked procreation that takes place. Number one is either that we have um, godly men um, that are uh, procreating with ungodly women, which God is going to warn His own people about in Deuteronomy as they're getting ready to enter in the promised land. Or we have view number two, which we looked at as well in depth and seeing and tracing the words and viewing and looks, uh, looking at the second view being that there is either sort of one or two things kind of happening here. Either one, that the demonic world is putting on flesh, which is leaving the habitation of which they were never meant to, to be a part of. Uh, we looked at last week that sort of demonic fascination with uh, putting on flesh. We see that throughout the Gospels with possessions, um, that they are doing something that they, um, one, should not be doing because they're already rebellious, but even more illicit uh, than to seek out to create and to be like the Most High God, uh, God that they had rebelled against. Or the sort of Part B option of that is that it is some sort of demonically possessed Men, nevertheless, what we find is that either one, whether it was intermarriage between godly and ungodly, that was unbiblical, unholy, unrighteous, it was not good, or the other view. And that too would be certainly just as wicked, if not even more wicked. Nevertheless, we're looking at something that is completely vile. And we come to verse number three, and here's what we find. We find the character of God here. The Lord said, anytime God speaks, we must pay attention because ultimately the whole Bible is God speaking to us. It is the revelation of God. And when God speaks, He's speaking not just to declare something, but every time God speaks and declares something, He is revealing us to us something about Himself. When God speaks, He is revealing to His creation, to His people, who He is, what He is like. And there is nothing more important that you and I can know and understand or believe than to know who God is and what He is like. But how can we know who God is and what He is like? Easy. He's revealed Himself right here. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what He is like, it is going to be found in His preserved Word. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that He also is flesh, yet His days shall be in hundred and twenty years. Here God in His holiness and justice will not continue to allow rebellion forever. He cannot. And God will not. This is the beauty of the cross, mind you. That God has not let your sin or mine unpunished. Think about this. We often think that God just let you and I get out of jail free. Right? That's not the case. You, you and I don't have to experience the wrath and the judgment or pay the price for our sin because we couldn't pay it. Jesus instead did. You and I received mercy where Jesus received justice. Now, now this is what happened. He received justice of which you and I should have been the ones that had God's wrath poured out upon us. But instead, Jesus did. We find that where there is sin, there must be a consequence. There must be judgment because that is who God is. Psalm 2 talks about this, that there is this world that looks and they gnash their teeth at God. They rebel against Him. They cry out against Him. And, and Psalm 2 talks about how God Himself will, will literally laugh at them as the idea. That, that he's, he's going to have enough with His foolishness. When God thinks about judgment, and even specifically when we think about end times judgment, it is not something that God goes, oh no, I don't want to do that. Right? He's got to. Now that's a frightening thing. 
Because there is a real world, a real multitude of people that will not face God like you and I will. Will they face God? Yes. But I get to face Him as someone who has been bought by the blood of His Son. Someone who is now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Someone who has sinned every day since He was saved, but yet His sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. But those, and many here in chapter 6, who do not trust the Lord, they will face only His justice. Now the word strive here is important and it is key to understand this. It has several meanings, but with the idea to rule, judge, as well as to abide with. As one commentator puts it, this, His Spirit, God will withdraw from man and thereby put an end to their life and conduct. Meaning, enough will be enough. Sin will have its limit reached. Now, does that mean that after the flood there will be no more sin? Well, you and I are walking proof that that's not the case. The idea is that God is saying up to this point, no more. Clearly, whatever the sin is of verse number 2, regardless of your view, God has said, nope, this is the point. I'm done. You ever being a kid and you've done enough, right? Where you've smart-mouthed enough, uh, done dumb stuff enough, disobeyed enough, and your mom or your dad looks at you and said, I've had it up to here. Anybody? Okay, I was going to say it won't just me, was it? Never happened Old Pastor Joe, no. But when that happens, what, what do you know? You know, oh, that's enough. Here, it's enough. It says, men says God have proved themselves by their erring and straying to be flesh, given up to themselves, uh, given up to the flesh, and incapable of being ruled by the Spirit of God and led back to the divine goal of their life. Uh, the word here is used already in its ethical uh, signification like uh, Sarki in the New Testament, denoting not merely the natural uh, corporeality of man, but his ma uh, materiality as rendered ungodly by sin. I mean, everything about him has now grown sinful. God has had enough of this rebellion. And we must see sin as rebellion because it is. It is going against the rule of the king. Not just the king of the earth, but the king who holds all of creation. The king who holds all of authority. The commentary continues. He talks about this. He says, Therefore his day shall be 120 years. This means not that human life should in future never attain a greater age than 120 years. There's going to be several examples of that. Many make that argument using this verse, and you can, and that's, that's up to you. Nevertheless, I believe that what we're getting at here is something deeper. He says, This sentence, as we may gather from the context, was made known to Noah in his 480th year, to be, uh, to be published by him as a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And that's what Noah did, besides build a boat. He was a preacher. He preached righteousness. What does it mean to preach righteousness? It's the same message that every other prophet preached. Repent, lest you perish. The same message that John the Baptist preached, that Jesus preached, that Isaiah, that Jeremiah preached. Because there truly is only one message. There's only one message, right? I can tell you, here's tonight's message. Repent and trust the Lord. If you come back this Sunday, <laughs> repent, trust the Lord. Because there truly is this ultimate focus in Scripture that 
God's creation must continuously repent of sins and turn to the Lord. Specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's promise, the fulfillment of His promise. That is His Word. The fulfillment of His provision. That is His work. And ultimately, to bring us uh, into His presence. That is God's very will. Now, he says, the reason why men had gone so far astray that God determined to withdraw His Spirit and give them up to destruction was that the sons of God had taken wives of such of the daughters of men as they chose. And as we've already addressed both of those views, you can take your opinion on whichever one. We see that God has had enough with this. What we find is much of what Romans discusses, this idea of reprobation, the people have become reprobate. Sin has... With reprobation, we have to understand with this, right? It is a God giving them over to it, right? So if this was an endless, bottomless, hellish pit full of fire, and God's over here, and He's saying you should really not stand next to that pit, you might fall. And I keep going, whoa, whoa. One, I've already, right? Now, now what if He does then this? Don't get near the pit. And I go, but I'm not touching it, right? I'm not touching it. I've disobeyed him once already. Now I continue to. Now, giving over is where I'm doing this. He lets me go. The idea of reprobation is that sin itself is the cause. It's brought me to this pit, hasn't it? God didn't put me at this pit. In fact, he told me not to come over to it. What did bring me to it? My sinful lust and desires. That's my choice. That's not God. Right? So now I'm playing with this pit, and I'm playing with God. And so that can only go but so far. Sin is the cause, but sin then is the consequence. We think that hell is awful, and I want you to know it is. This idea of reprobate is awful to think about as well. Because what this means is that God will allow us then, at that point, to stay in our sin. I don't know that there's coming out of that. And the only thing that ever could would be God's mercy anyways. Which, let's remember, mind you, we've got about a couple thousand years of history at this point. Has God been less merciful during this time? No. But has man been more rebellious? Yes, that's why he's coming in verse 3 and saying, "Uh uh-uh, no more. This is done. This is a picture of giving over to a reprobate mind in Romans 1, and as well, and I think this is key, this helps us understand. Remember as we talked about the very beginning of Genesis, what does the beginning tell us? The ending, right? If we understand this, I believe this is also a picture of what 2 Thessalonians is discussing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you want to turn there real quick, I'm just going to get there real quick and uh, just share for half a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's what we find. If the beginning is telling us the ending, Thessalonians, both 1 and 2 Thessalonians, tell us a lot about the end times, if you will. Specifically that of snatching away of the church and then what's to come in the time of tribulation. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 7, it tells us this. It says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. It says, And then shall that wicked be revealed. 
whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Right, and goes on through and discussing these things. The idea is that the restraining power of the Holy Spirit will be fully withdrawn. The only thing that keeps me right now from falling into the endless pit, if you will, is God's restraining Spirit. The only thing that allows this world to keep spinning in the way that it is spinning right now is not because we've cut down on carbon emissions or we've got enough electric vehicles out there. In fact, that's just not going to quite cut the mustard. It is the restraining power of God. I cannot think of anything more frightening than for God to go. Imagine for a moment that God took His eye off of you for a moment. What would your life be like? It would end. That's what it would be like. You say, well, how could God look at me all the time? Because He loves you a whole lot more than you can imagine. And He is an ever-present God who not only sees the past and the future, but He's looking right at you. Because He cares. Now that's an encouraging thing for us tonight. But as well, it's a frightening thing to think that God goes, I'm not going to hold anymore. He allows the world to spin and to spin into its own destruction caused by its own sinful destruction. I believe that this, verse 3, is discussing that God is graciously and mercifully giving a 120-year reprieve before the flood. 2 Peter 3.9 sort of gives an allusion to this. Uh, 2 Peter, we see this. 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that should all come to repentance. Well, let's think about that in context. You go back, the first eight verses is dealing with Christ's coming, specifically that they were those, knowing this, that first there should come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They said, oh, the world's not coming to an end. People have been saying that forever. It ain't going to happen. We're just going to keep on spinning, keep on spinning. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. It's talking about the great flood. Some of the great day of judgment. What is God doing here in verse 3? And into chapter 6, mind you. I believe He's doing much of what He did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's giving reprieve. He's giving grace when justice was deserved. He's giving mercy when wrath should have been given. Because God is always, and I mean this, God is always revealing Himself in order to redeem rebels. God is always revealing Himself to mankind, to His creation. Why? To reconcile them back. Specifically, Colossians 1.20, by the blood of Jesus' cross, to reconcile all things unto Himself. What I believe that God is doing here, you say only 120 years? That's, that's more than fair. He's already given them what? How many, how many years at this point? Generation after generation of generation. God is more than gracious, more than merciful, more than kind. Now as we come to verse 4, we see that here God is saying, all right, enough's enough. I'm going to give 120 years, and that's going to be it. During those 120 years, what's going to be happening? The world is going to continue getting more and more sinful and living in complete 
ignorant bliss that the end is coming. All the while, it seems a madman who's hammering away, building a boat, preaching, repent, rains are coming. Get on the boat. Believe the Lord. God has spoken. The same thing that every other prophet has preached. All the while, everyone else is going about their own life. Living, drinking, giving in marriage, right? The whole thing. Growing more and more sexually immoral. Growing more and more violent. Growing more and more sinful and godless. Verse 4 continues to describe this sort of state and what led to this I believe is what we find in verse 2, what brought us here. Now, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. Sort of maybe just for some, some relief here from the, the difficulty of this passage. Uh, my dad's a great big man. I don't know if y'all know that. If you've seen him, he's great big. Uh, my, <laughs> Pastor Paul, have y'all seen him? He's not so great big. One of my favorite things is watching the two of them walk side by side. Because you got one that's like right here, and this one's like this. And uh, one of my favorite things is when me and me and Pastor Paul be sitting in the office, and we'd be getting ready, we'd be waiting for Dad to show up, and we'd go out visiting, go see Shuddens. Watching Dad visit little old sweet Shuddens is about the funniest thing you'll ever see, too. You know, but no one's more gentle, and the Shuddens like talking to him more than they do me and Pastor Paul. But every time my dad would walk in, you'd hear his keys. Sounds a lot like me, like father, like son. And then you'd hear Pastor Paul rear back in his office chair and go, and there were giants in the earth in those days. But here there's giants in the earth. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all believe that there were giants in the earth? Now let me ask you another question. How many of y'all think that giants were giant? <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty simple, don't it? A giant being giant? But there's some folks here that look at this passage. They look at verse number 4 and they say, well, you know, the word giant here actually means, and I go, well, actually you're not right, but here's what they say. They say that giant here means only ruler or someone who has like a kingly or a royal lineage. Now that sounds nice in theory. But last time I checked, when the Philistines were standing across from the Israelites, they didn't send out their king to go call somebody to battle. They sent a giant. A mighty giant. He's big. He's bad and he's ugly. And he was ready to fight. God sent someone else out to go fight that giant. Did God send out a giant? Not physically, did He? He sent a giant in the faith, though. One that had faith not so much that was giant, but he had faith in a giant God that was a whole lot bigger than Goliath. What we find is that there were real, actual, literal giants. And I believe that what we find is that this is the offspring of the reprobate rebellion. No matter which view you prefer to hold with the sons of God, clearly the result of the corrupting of the lineages, intermarrying, and sexual perversion of some kind is enough for God to judge the world. Uh, does that sound familiar to where we're at today? If it was enough then, it's enough now. We've got to understand time is short. Now, I'm not one of those date setters, nor am I ever going to be a date setter, but I do know this. I'm going to set the date like Jesus said it. He's, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. I don't know when that's going to be, but when He does, it's going to be quick. And it is coming. It is imminent. 
Now, there will be more details about the sinfulness to come as we study Genesis 6 as to the depths of lawlessness that was going on in the days of Noah. Now, with this, the giants in the earth in those days, or as I like to say, the giants in the earth in those days, fee, five of right? They appear to be the offspring of the perverse intermarrying and sexual union taking place of either of you one, the godly and the ungodly hooking up, right? And that was unholy, that was unrighteous, that was wicked, was perverse. Or view number two, which would be also incredibly wicked and perverse, would it not? Absolutely. Now, nevertheless, there is some mystery, and you can hold to either view here, and what we still find is this. There is some immorality, and there's immorality because there's idolatry. Where you find immorality, you find idolatry, right? Immorality is the outward fruit of an inward idol, and it could be oneself. Now, these men of renown is the understanding not that they were just mighty or powerful or, or rulers, right? But this gives the implication that they were worshipped and ruled violently over others. Now, this is important here. Here's what we're getting at. Parsons writes, some, prophes- uh, some prophecy teachers today confuse the Nephilim, which is the word here for giants, by the way, with the Ben Elohim as though they both referred to rebellious angels, but like the majority of ancient biblical translations, including the Greek Septuagint and Latin Vulgate, the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon gives the meaning of Nephilim as giants. This is the plural form of the Hebrew root Nephil, which is associated with the word fall. Thus, most scholars consider the Nephilim to be extremely large bullies, if you will, like Goliath, who violently fell upon or preyed upon ordinary humans. You say, what does that have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with this. We look at verse number 4. And here's what we're getting at. These people were giants in these days come because the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them and the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. So these were literal physical men. You know how I know that? Because the word men is used. That's the same, that's the same word all throughout Genesis here. It is the physical, fleshly man. You can see them, they bleed, they die, and they will die. They're full of sin. They're born with a sin nature. Regardless of whether it's view one or view two of how they got there. Now what we find is that they're men of renown. What is this idea? I believe this is not just that they had authority, but why would they have authority? Imagine this. If we were in this place, right, and I said, hey, everybody, follow me. But then somebody walked in and they were 10 foot tall and at least maybe had a few more pounds on me, right? They got a great big old spear. They got great big old armor. And they say, follow me. Which one are you more afraid of, me or him? Him, yeah. Yeah, I'm picking him, right? I've only got but so many bullets, right, before he gets a hold of me. And we're going to be in trouble. Now we think about this. Who is normally considered to be the one in charge? The biggest and the baddest. Let me, let me look, look at this even. Israel fell into the same trap, didn't they? Israel would later fall into this trap because they had salt, head and shoulders, right? Knees and toes above everybody. And they're, they're thinking here, our Messiah is going to come and He's going to be strapping, He's going to be muscular, He's going to be militarily uh, fit, He's going to be, he's gonna be like that. What we see here, I believe, is that what's happening is that this intermarrying is bringing about folks 
who were being worshipped as gods. They ruled violently. They possessed all power, at least so they thought, at least in the world around them. Now, the reason why we look at this, this becomes a pattern that we're going to get into throughout Genesis, and especially once we get into the Tower of Babel, and once we get into Egypt. What do you know about Pharaoh? Did Pharaoh just say that he was a king, or did he say he was a god? He was a god. Why? Because where you find people, specifically men who have power and authority, what do they often then do with that? They claim that they must be worshipped. The same still happens today, mind you. And there's coming one in the future who's going to do just that. You know who that is? The Antichrist. It is the very spirit of Antichrist from the beginning, as, as 1 John talks about, that has been at work, that causes doubt, causes disbelief, that causes all of these things. Now, as we look here, I want us to understand that all ancient cultures had the same mentality of setting up kings and rulers and worshiping them as gods. They would set up pyramids, and we have some in the United States, by the way. We've got ancient cultures who would, and we're going to get into that with Tower of Babel, of course, all right? We've got ancient cultures all over, every continent that you find them, even here. And they worshiped these people as gods. Many of them, now here's what's interesting. Many of the archaic drawings of these figures, many of the descriptions that were written down, or even the oral history of these mighty men of ancient civilizations, whether it be Native Americans or in the Middle East, or in Africa, or in Asia, you know what they find? They were often large in stature, even giant, if you will. Many of them having not just five digits on each hand and, and feet, but six. That sounds crazy, but what are we talking about? We're talking about giants. We're talking about literal people who ruled violently and were worshipped as gods. Now, let's get into this. If view number two is right, and the reason why we include this, one, I believe that biblically we're looking at the words sons of God, and as we traced it, I think it probably makes the most sense, and even it leads to the most wicked of perversion of which God is going to have enough. I want to present a few things about this. Now, this is not a hill to die on, nor this is a, you're going to get run out of the church, nor should it be a thing that you run me out, but if you do, let's just talk about it first, right? Now here we look at, some say that if the sons of God are demonic creatures, then there is no reason to destroy, excuse me, some say that if the sons of God are uh, not demonic creatures, then there is no reason to destroy the world. But notice that marriage takes two. If view number two is correct, then clearly these women and communities were seeking to create superhuman race of men. Now notice this, all right? Follow me here. What does Eve say when she has Cain? I got me a man. I brought life. She believes that she's holding her Messiah. That's not too far from going too far, is it? Matter of fact, he wouldn't be the Messiah. He would be a murderer. He would kill the one who was living right, who was full of faith. Now what we find is that clearly, up to this point, what is every generation looking for? The Messiah, the promised seed. What was every generation of Israel looking for? The Messiah, the promised seed. 
This is why, if you notice, much of the slander that was given to Jesus or about Jesus in his day was about his lineage. Joseph's boy? No. Nazareth? No. Can't be from there. Nothing good comes from there. He's just the old son of a carpenter. He's nobody. And they missed it. They missed the promised seed because they were looking for the promised seed to look like what they thought it should look like. Here's what we find is that mankind is always trying to thrust his own will upon the will of God. That's what sin is itself. In every pagan religion and culture, there are tales of giants and superhuman-like people. They were worshipped as gods, and we'll have more details about that with old Nimrod in Genesis 11. We see that these folks who are described, these demonic beings, 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 9, Unger writes, the Nephilim are considered by many as giants, demigods, the unnatural offspring of the daughters of men, mortal women, and cohabitation with the sons of God, uh, fallen angels, if you will. This utterly unnatural union, violating God's created orders of being, was such a shocking abnormality as to necessitate the worldwide judgment of the flood. Either option, God is saying enough. But if you're taking view number two, it's most certainly got to be enough. As a matter of fact, we see much of the evidence uh, throughout as well in the New Testament of what the Lord talks about in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. He says this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved at judgment, and spared not the old world, what's the old world? The pre-flood world. But saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that hasn't happened yet, we're getting into that in Genesis, into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds." Now, if you go back and you read Genesis 19, which we'll get to sometime, Genesis 19 covers Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, but old righteous Lot being rescued. Now, with that, here's what I want to look at. There's some significance here, if it is view two, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice this, by the way, when we see two passages in particular, 2 Peter and Jude, when we see these two, uh, they are referencing um, this idea of punishing demonic beings and then immediately goes into an account of Sodom and Gomorrah being punished. Now hold that thought. Parsons writes, In Genesis 6, the emphasis is on the breach of the heavenly and earthly divide, which led the births of the giants bold. This violation is also stressed in Jude 6 and 7. It's 2 Peter chapter 2. Immediately followed by references to Sodom as having committed the same sin. Now the two are easily connected. Before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, we read in chapter 14 about the great battle of four kings against the five kings. Essentially, the First World War. It took place soon after Abraham had arrived in the land of Canaan. His nephew Lot had settled in Sodom. When the battle began, the invading kings first went through the land, kill, uh, kills off uh, the Rephaim, Zuzim, and Emim, 
all giants descended from Nephilim. With their mightiest warriors now dead, the Canaanite cities, including Sodom, were easy prey for the invaders. Now think about this. If you want to win a battle, do you want your mighty warriors or do you want to not have mighty warriors? You want to have mighty warriors, don't you? Right? Uh, when you are playing a football game, do you want your best player starting or your worst player starting? Your best, that's right. Tell that Coach Rivera, all right? <sighs> Nevertheless, with these mighty warriors now dead, the Canaanites, including Sodom, were easy prey for the invaders. Lot was taken prisoner, if you remember that, with the other Sodomites, forcing Abraham and his private army to pursue and rescue them. And old Abraham, and I can't wait to get to this, Abraham took care of business, right? Now then in Genesis 19, two angels arrived. You notice how those angels arrived. They look an awful lot like men. They put on bodies of humans, if you will. And in Genesis 18, we find, here's what they do. They walk, they talk, they eat. That sounds pretty bodily to me. Now, here's what happens. The two angels arrived to extract Lot from Sodom before it was destroyed by God. But verse 4 says, All the people from every quarter. Genesis 19, verse number 3 says, And he pressed upon them greatly, and he, they, they turned in unto him and entered into his house. He's angelic beings. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. So they eat with him. But before they lay down for sleep, for rest, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, can pass the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. So notice we don't just have, and here's been my thought my whole life, all the wicked, perverse men show up and they come with perverse mentality, right? And they absolutely do here. But notice it's not just the men showing up. It's all the people. Now you don't have to be much of a scholar to think about what all the people means. Everybody wants to come see these men that Lot is housing. And they surround Lot's house and demand it to have sexual relations with the angels. How do we know? As we'll see. As we get to it, we'll study it in further detail. But in Genesis 19, he says, in verse number 5, And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in unto thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. That's sexual immorality. They wanted to have their way with them. It's perversion. And Lot went out that door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray, do not so wickedly. And offers up his two daughters. It's a rough story. It's a rough account. And with this, traditionally this crowd has been viewed as a mob of homosexuals. But I believe something else here, as Parsons writes, is what, this is what Parsons is saying. He says, I believe something else is occurring here. The people of Sodom thought that if they could mate their wives with these two angels, it would produce new warrior giants to help defend a city still recovering from a crushing defeat. So they brought every able-bodied person in town to help subdue the two angels, yet from God's perspective, they were again trying to cross the line to have human mates with angels, which gives a whole new meaning to the term sodomy. Now, if you hold the view two, it would make sense. If you hold the view one, you go, I don't know. And here at the end of the day, we go, there's some mystery. Nevertheless, we do know this. The same sinfulness is being practiced. There is an unholy, unrighteous, ungodly union that is desired. And what we find is that there is an immoral desire because there is an idolatrous heart at stake. 
Now, view two is right. And what we're finding is that they are wanting to create superhumans for their own purposes. I can tell you today, we're doing the same thing. All right? Here's where we're at as a society. We are superhuman obsessed. The highest grossing movies are, are about superheroes. You say, well, it's superheroes, Pastor Joe. What are superheroes? What makes them so special? They are men and women who are in the flesh but have supernatural or superhuman abilities. And what does every little kid want to be when they grow up? They want to be a superhero. Because they want to have unearthly abilities. Because our sinful condition wants what it cannot have. Our sinful flesh wants to be limitless. Only God can have such. Now, when we think about this, you say, is it just about superheroes? Is it just about Marvel? No. We've got people who are seeking how we can not just train our bodies, but biologically change our bodies to breathe underwater, to adapt to flight, to adapt to pain, to adapt to this. You're able to literally in the womb now, begin to decide what your kid will look like and act like. You're able to literally, in some cases, if you lose a limb, to be better off without it and have something artificial. Right? We think about TV shows, was it The $5 Million Man and all these different things. These things, it, it doesn't sound that crazy to us, but we're living in a world that is obsessed with being extra human. Right now, there's a show out where the guy who played Thor, what's his name? Anybody know who played Thor? Okay, well, I knew somebody would know it. Anyways, he's playing, he's doing this whole documentary thing where they're trying to figure out how mankind can live forever. Why? Because our flesh wants what it cannot have. Now, as we look at this, we bring this all to a close, we try to put a nice little bow on it. I want us to be mindful of this. There's some mystery here, but here's what's not mysterious. There is a great deal of sin, and God is saying, enough. Wickedness, violence, sexual immorality is growing, and there are people who are being worshipped as gods. Idolatry and immorality, as far as the eye can see, and God sees it. How do I know? Verse 5 says, and God saw the wickedness. We're going to get into that. Not tonight. I'll bring these last three things and we'll be done. Idolatry and immorality. Sin causes the sinner to go contrary to God's order and laws. Sin itself, by definition, means lawlessness. It is always seeking to push the boundary. Furthermore, sin causes the sinner to desire worship that only belongs to God and to even be like the Most High by any perverted means necessary to do so, whether it's godly mating with ungodly, procreating to make leaders in their own world who would be men of renown, or whether it is the perverseness of mankind seeking to procreate which that which is unnatural to do so with the spiritual world, and the spiritual world seeking to do the same, which would pervert the lineage, which means that their Messiah cannot come through a perverted seed. 
What we find is Satan's same attack that he's always had. Cause men to doubt God. Cause men to doubt God's Word. Cause men to disobey God's Word. And in so doing, cause man to want to be their own God. This is the progression. Sin causes the sinner to be apostate, reprobate, and unhindered to sin until the day of judgment. Sin is the cause and the consequence. Tonight, as we wrap this section up, I would be full of an awful lot of pride if I said this is an easy passage to study or to prepare for or to make decisions about. Because it's difficult. But here's what's not hard. Taking God at His Word. And here's what God's Word says. Sin abounded, but grace abounds. God gives grace and that in these next few verses, what we're going to find is that God allows a man to build a boat and to preach that there is another way. A much more narrow way than the world. It's a narrow way that leads inside of an ark. The ark of Christ. We must see that all throughout this Scripture, what we find is this continual disobedience to Jesus, this continual disobedience to to God Himself and to His Word, but a continued draw and revealing of God's character to draw men to repentance and faith, to trust in His promise and His provision to bring us one day into His presence. So today, may we see tough passages like this. May we not shy away from them. If anything, may we embrace the God who gave this to us so that we might know Him more and that we trust Him with the unknown. I love that I don't know all that God knows. It drives me to want to know Him more and to dive more into what He said I can know about Him and to praise Him when I find things that I just don't know. Our hearts tonight should rejoice that He has revealed Himself, that He has saved us, that one day you and I will be fully and finally free from sin. Amen? Let's pray, and then uh, we'll take down some, some decorations, all right? Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. And God, we thank You that we could look at this passage as difficult of a journey as it's been, God, and as much mystery as we have, Lord. And humbly, we, I have to confess myself, Lord, I, it's a difficult passage, God. We, we've got mystery here, but Lord, that is one of the most beautiful things about Your Word and about knowing You is that there is some mystery, but yet still You are the knowable God that we can know and have communion and fellowship with through the Lord Jesus Christ, Your Son who You sent for us. God, we pray that You would help us tonight, keep us safe till we meet again. May we ponder Your Word. God, may we ponder the things that we aren't sure of. God, that it might draw us to praise You and to thank You that You are a God who is worth serving, a God who is worth praising and adoring forever and forever, and that one day You, O Lord, are going to take us out of this world Bring us into Your presence and we will be delivered fully from sin itself. We love You. We thank You for this time. And we thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright. Last one to take a wreath down is Rotten Egg.